Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. Today, we're going to talk about damages. As an introduction, I'm just thinking about in real life on the streets, it's an awkward thing to go up to someone else and ask them for money or even to ask them for money for someone else. It's a difficult thing for many of us to do that. But in the courtroom, it's an important thing for trial lawyers to do. We have to do it. It's an essential part of our job in the courtroom as part of the trial. So that's what we're here for today. Overall, we're going to talk about how to present, how to argue damages in close. And Eric, you make a good point. First of all, there is some awkwardness, maybe. You're asking people to come in who are not, have never done this before, and you're asking them to listen to injuries, pain, and suffering, and maybe a death, and put a dollar amount on that. What I do, because of this very issue, you really have to hammer it in voir dire. you got to talk about that. This is a case for personal injury. This case is about money damages. We're not asking you to put anybody in jail. We're not asking you to put anybody out of business. We're here for money damages, for compensation, which is what the law requires. And the way I approach that in voir dire and a lot of times in close is I'll talk about the system, the system of justice that we have in civil cases where someone's negligent conduct injured someone and took something away from them, whether it's mobility or their sight or their hearing or ability to walk, whatever it is. And in many cases, I've started out in close when I'm talking about damages, telling the jury, look, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a system where the 12 of you could go back in time and undo what happened to my client? And that certainly would be true justice. That'd be the best system of all, to be able to go back in time and undo what's been done. Unfortunately, we can't do that. And everybody here in this room wishes that we could. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask you to do the next best thing, and that is give fair and just compensation for the harms, for what has been taken away from my client in this case. And by the way, I don't like loss. When we talk about lost, you know, they lost their ability to see. Their client really didn't lose anything. It was taken away from them. And I think it's important to make that distinction anytime during trial you're talking about it. But it is. It's something that's out of the ordinary, and it's foreign. It's a foreign concept overwhelmingly to 99% of the people out there to be asked to put a dollar amount on pain and suffering, a dollar amount on disability, a dollar amount on emotional harms. And so you need to explain in the beginning of the case, I think that this is what the system's about. It requires you to give full and fair compensation. And the other thing you get a lot of times in Vordar, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what I'd need to consider. And you need to, in the very beginning, I think in Vordar, let the jury know that you'll be given guidance by the law the legal basis for awarding damages, and we will also provide you with a rational basis for damages. And we'll show you how the evidence fits into the law and and what you need to do when you consider damages in the case. You know, as you're uh, describing that, it is foreign, but it's also extremely intuitive. It's one of these things that you can look at it from two sides. So as you're talking, I'm thinking about Mark Johnson and George Lakoff write about metaphor quite a bit, and I follow them closely. They have a concept called moral accounting, and it's the idea that we see things in terms of balancing the books. So if I accidentally burn down your house, I feel morally indebted to you. You can, you know, that's a term from accounting, indebted. And so you balance the books by 
I hurt you. I balance the books by giving you something. So it's really natural. And we see it on the streets all the time. If I have a fender bender, you know, someone bangs my car a little bit and they say, oh, I'm so sorry. You'll have to pay a bit of money to get that scuff out of your car. And we might even just do it on the street. You know, here, here's $200. Can I send you a check or whatever? Skip the insurance company. We've traded a bit of damage on a car for money. How do we make that translation? We make up for it in some way. Well, the only easy way to do it in a courtroom would be to award money to make up for that pain by allowing that person to be treated by doctors and to get the things they need to balance the books. There are some jurors, more than you would think, that are not comfortable with the concept of giving money for pain and suffering, basically. You need to bring that up in vor dire. You need to talk about giving money for pain and suffering, giving money for disability, and more importantly, find out if anybody has any difficulty or reluctance to do that. Because if they do, you need to know that before the plane takes off, right? You got to find that out in vor dire. You don't want to find it out when they're back in the deliberations room or when you're talking to them after you lost the case. What are the two most important things in a very general sense for arguing or presenting damages in your case, in a personal injury case? Number one is you need to have earned the jury's trust throughout the trial. And by that, I mean, how did you conduct yourself during the case? Were you honest? Were you authentic? Were you yourself? If you lose your credibility or you lose the trust of the jury, good luck. I just can't see a jury awarding fair and adequate damages for your client if they don't trust you. And it is an environment that is susceptible to mistrust. You got two different teams of lawyers on each side arguing different things and giving arguments about it. I think the jurors as a group, they're in a new environment and they want to do the right thing. And they really are looking for the person in that room that they can relate to and trust. And I think if you're that person, it will do more for your client and your ability to argue damages and get fair and full damages in a case than anything else. And John, I think it might be worth mentioning that we talked about trust quite a bit in some of our earlier podcasts. We had several podcasts on opening statement. And I believe that it was in those podcasts that you broke out that issue of trust into many subtopics into how to earn the trust of the jury. I think if you don't have trust, you might as well not even get up there right? If you don't have trust, it's not worth saying anything at all. If you're talking to somebody and they already trust what you're saying and they like you, it is much easier for you. So number one, earn their trust. And that's something that you need to do during the trial. Number two, you need to provide both a rational and legal basis for the damage award. What am I talking about here? Okay, you have a good case on liability and everybody's trying on liability and you don't spend a whole lot of time on damages and you don't spend time explaining to the jury how they calculate damages. And then all of a sudden you come out at the end of the case, you spend five or 10 minutes on damages and you give them this big amount. And they're probably scratching their head wondering, where did that come from? What's the basis for that? What evidence supports that? First, providing a legal basis. Well, obviously that's the jury instructions. You have your jury instructions, and I think it is a mistake not to go over those jury instructions in closing argument. Going over the jury instructions, for me, is always a big part of your close. It's a good way, easy way to frame the close, but specifically the jury instructions on damages. Obviously, blow them up, put them on a board, and go over in detail what they say with the jurors. In Missouri, our instructions say that 
you must award such sum as you believe will fairly and justly compensate plaintiff for any damages you believed she sustained and is reasonably likely to sustain in the future. And so what I do is I will literally put that phrase up on the board. I will underline or highlight certain words in that instruction and spend a little bit of time talking about them. This is what you have to do. And it needs to be fairly and justly compensated. I always highlight all damages, any damages, you know, not part of the damages or some of the damages. Emphasize what the law requires. This is what the law requires you to do. Fairly and justly compensate for all the damages, not half, not part. That's a really, really good start because it gives the jurors the legal framework for what you're about to ask them to do. The instruction also doesn't invite them. It tells them to award what the plaintiff is reasonably certain to sustain in the future as well. The important point there is the plaintiff can't come back five years later when that medical condition is still lingering. So that's your job as an attorney to present that evidence in a medical case through medical expertise. But this is their only shot. So there is an urgency. This is the moment. And if that moment passes, it will never happen again. And that instruction does take that into account. This instruction is very, very useful in undermining the defense's arguments. Every case I have, I will sit down and, again, make a list of what are they arguing? What is the defendant in this case arguing? And then you figure out how to deal with that argument, with that issue, and especially on damages. And most of the time, in my cases, I mean, we're not arguing about whether somebody's hurt. You know, in my cases, that's not a disputed issue. And so the question mostly is what amount of damages is sufficient to compensate the plaintiff? So what I do is I make a list of what the defendant has argued throughout the case. Most of them are jury nullification arguments. That's how I would refer to them. In other words, they're really improper. They're not based on the evidence. It's not a direct request or a direct argument, but subtly suggesting that maybe the client has family that can take care of them and they don't need all the money that's in the life care plan. You'll hear a suggestion about what they need to get by, okay? And what I do is I point out in close, look, if you hear this argument, what do they need? That's not what the instruction says. The instruction doesn't say, what do you need to skimp by in your life with the bare minimum? It's the value of what was taken from them. It's completely different. Money can't fix their problems. I hear that all the time. What good will the money do? And the defense usually tries their best to insert that into the case and jurors pick up on it. And I can see them back in the jury room. I've seen it in focus groups. Well, we can't do anything about it. You know, they're dead. We can't bring them back. And you really need to use that instruction in close at the outset to say, that's not legally permissible. If somebody goes back in the jury room and you're deliberating damages and they say, well, we can't fix it, we can't bring it back, you need to say, well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, that's not the law. You're not following the law. Go back to this instruction. For instance, if you got a really good family, it's a wonderful thing, but a lot of times people count on their families and impose on their families to take care of them because they don't have the resources before the trial to do that. So anyway, these instructions are very, very helpful. I think it's really a must. You got to use them in the beginning of closing argument, or at least the beginning of the portion for damages. You know, the jurors get the facts in close. They've been sitting there for a week or two weeks or two days or whatever it is. They've probably heard the facts more than they want to four or five times the same thing. They get it. They understand it. What they haven't heard one word about is the law, the instructions. And so you're going to have their attention. And I think that's a really, really important and prime time to go over these instructions with them. 
the frustration many people might have with the word money. There's an injury, there's a bad situation, and you're asking that it be fixed with money. And it just sounds crass to many people, but what is the alternative? You can't go back in a time machine and undo the thing. It's done. There's no way to fix that. That's the only way we know in this modern society to help that person get back on their feet and get back to the life they had. If there were a better way to do it, we'd do it. But money is the way that they can buy back the things that were taken from them. Once you talk about the legal basis, the jury instructions on damages and what the law requires the jury to do, what do you do after that? How do you justify, and you know, I'm not talking about economic damages, you got medical bills, you got a life care plan, but things like physical harm, pain and impairment, disability, things like that, how do you provide a rational basis for what is just and fair? My two-step approach is this. I go through examples several examples of what we value most in life. That's the first thing that I do. And I don't just do that in close. I spend time doing that across examining some of the witnesses. I spend a lot of time on it in Vordire. When you Vordire the jury, flat out ask, other than faith and family, what are the things that you cherish most? What are the things that you value most in life? And without question, the top of that list is going to be health, my health, my well-being. Talk about mobility. How do you value that? How important is that to you to be able to get out and socialize, leave your house, go back and forth as you please, your independence, your freedom, being an active father or a hands-on grandmother, your dignity, having your family members or your children or your grandchildren having to take care of you because you're unable to take care of yourself because of something that somebody else did. Our freedom, it's a big deal. I mean, that means being able to do what you want, live your life the way you want to live it. How important are these things to us? Okay. And I think if you have a good long discussion in Vordire about some of these things, you'll see consensus with everybody. COVID has given us all a taste of this. Mobility, start at the top of your list was health and well-being. But think about mobility. Some of us have family members in nursing homes and isolated in other places where we can't visit them. Independence, freedom, dignity. So this pandemic has given us all a bit of a taste of this. Well, ramp that up 10 or 100 times for someone who's badly hurt. It might give us all a little bit of empathy for what happens when someone has been deprived of these in even much bigger ways. These are things everybody agrees on. We explore that in Vordire. We bring it out when appropriate when we're cross-examining witnesses throughout the course of the case with your damage witnesses, with your life care planner. You really emphasize these things, the mobility and independence and freedom and things like that. And then once we get to close, it's easy to point out to everybody. And again, we're talking about providing a rational basis for the amount that you ask for. I identify the things that were taken from my client. Then the next step is I go through and I talk about the value that society places on the less important things, the material things, paintings that sell for $100 million, sports figures, salaries. CEOs that get paid, you know, I think the NFL commissioner got paid $40 million last year for 12 months of work for whatever it is that he's doing. The amount of money that we spend on things that are nowhere near as important as these other things. In other words, my client lost what we all agree is the most valuable thing you could possibly lose. And then secondly, we put a value on things that are much, much less important in 50 million, 40, whatever it is, you know, pick some examples. I had a death case involving 
a young girl, a teenage girl. I think she was 17 years old when she died. It was a medical malpractice case. And during closing argument, I put up a picture of a, a French artist who prepared a portrait of a young girl. And that portrait sold two years prior to the date of our trial for $80 million or $90 million. And I said, look here, our society puts a value of $80 million or $90 million on a picture, a painting of a young girl. And I said, there's nobody in this room, there's nobody I know that would place a higher value on a painting than an actual human being, than somebody's actual life. It was a wrongful death case. This is all providing not just the legal basis with the instructions, but a rational basis. In other words, where did I get the number from? The nice thing about this is not only are you providing a rational basis, but when the jurors get back and start deliberating, they've got your information. They've got your arguments. What you're doing in close is you're arming them with these arguments. So they go back and somebody says, well, we think that's, you know, this, and we don't want to give anything. They say, now, wait a minute, you can't do that. The law won't allow you to do that. Let's go back and look at the instruction again. If you find in favor of the plaintiff, you must award a sum that will fairly and justly compensate plaintiff for any damages you believe plaintiff sustained and so forth. But, you know, that does give you a foundation and it does impose an obligation. But I think we maybe could see this better in terms of a book that you and, and you and I are both big fans of, Rules of the Road, by Rick Friedman and Pat Malone. That book makes it very clear that vague principles, because I think these are important foundational principles, but they're still very vague. They don't get traction to a jury or to any of us. We need to make them come alive. And so what you are proposing, as I hear it, when you talk about the things we value most in our lives compared to the values we place on other things, which are not nearly as important as human beings, you are giving people more tangible, more vivid ideas of what's at stake. I think that's a great way to put it, Eric, and, and what a terrific book. I mean, it really is. So kind of to recap, when you're trying to provide a rational basis, a rational basis for the amount, focus on some of the things that your client has been, that has been taken from your client, not just the injuries, but the results and consequences of those injuries or disabilities. Point out how we all cherish them. They're the most valuable things in our lives with really no dispute. And then you compare that to other things in society and how we place in a heartbeat $10 million for this. And, you know, paying somebody in a, I like using sports analogies, you know, somebody who's sitting on a bench, not even starting, getting 10, $11 million a year. So once you've provided that basis, the next step is to move into the damage and talk in more detail about the loss that your client sustained, what was taken. I do that before I go over the jury instructions, before I even suggest an amount. Then I go into the actual damages, and I, I tend to separate the damages into categories. And I ask for, most often, a different amount for each of that category of damages. Now, the first category is the economic-type damages, and those are the life care plan, the medical bills. They're usually not disputed in the case. One of the things that I do is I separate physical harms from emotional harms. I think emotional harms are way, way more severe and more damaging and more of a loss than physical harms. Physical harms, everybody has pain. You got back pain, you got arm pain. I mean, things heal, you take pain medication, but the emotional aspect of it is something that really, truly is more significant. I think most people would agree with that. Let's talk about the physical harms. What I do is I'll go through and I'll look at everything 
that my client has gone through from the time of the incident up until the day of trial, the surgical or medical procedures, the preparation for surgery, the authorization. I mean, you look at an authorization for surgery that the client is able to sign. It talks about the risk, the consequences, things like that. I also talk about the medical conditions. And these are things I put up on a board. I have different categories of damages and I list them on a board in one or two words. I go through the conditions that my client is left with. I had a case involving product liability case where my client was a quadriplegic. He sustained UTIs on a regular basis, decubitus ulcers, constant swelling in his legs, fatigue, osteoporosis, bowel dysfunction, bladder dysfunction, spasticity in his limbs, continual repeated respiratory infections, inability to exercise, weight gain as a result, secondary infections from bed sore, shortened lifespan. All of these things are things that you need to have brought out during trial. I'll make one chart for the physical injuries, another one for the medical conditions that my client is left with because of those injuries. Then I'll make another chart for physical impairment. Client can't walk can barely move his or her arms, is in constant pain. And what you want to do is you want to give one or two examples. Just pick one or two of them in each category, maybe one, and just give an example of what you're talking about. For instance, one of the things is dependence. I had a case involving a young man who was, and I won't get into the details of the case, but he was 21, 22 years old and great health. He was a world-class athlete ended up severely brain damaged. And in close, I'm thinking, what do I tell the jury? How do I relate this horrific, horrific situation to people who didn't go through it? During the course of the trial and living this in and out with my client day in and day out, one morning in the office, I saw his mom, who was all by his side all the way through to take care of him and fix his shirt for him, help him get his shoes on. Rather than spend a whole lot of time on it, I just went in clothes. I just stood in front of the jury with a shoe, just with a shoe. And I said before, this is the before and after, you know, my client literally ran 10 miles a day, was a world-class athlete. He was a boxer. And now, yesterday, today, this morning, his mother had to tie his shoe for him. He's not even capable, nor will he ever be capable of a simple task such as tying his own shoe. So again, you got to figure out how much time you want to spend on each of these things. It's very case dependent, but you probably want to list them all so you don't miss any of them. But you want to pick out one or two good examples in your client's life. You're illustrating a very important part of what it means to be a trial lawyer. We are storytellers. And I'm not talking about storytelling in the sense of you just get to make stuff up. You're telling the story about this particular person you're representing, but it has to be told well. I think about this principle all the time. Show, don't tell. That's what they tell people who write screenplays, including nonfiction screenplays. Show, don't tell. Let me read a couple sentences from, this is from Wikipedia on show, don't tell. Show, don't tell is a technique used in various kinds of text to allow the reader to experience the story through action, through the actor's words, thoughts, senses, and feelings, rather than through the author's exposition, summarization, and description. It avoids adjectives describing the author's analysis, but instead describes the scene in such a way that the reader can draw his or her own conclusions. 
the shoe example is a great one. You hold up a shoe, a picture is worth a thousand words. That shoe represents a lot of stuff. It is permeated with emotion, but it's also a way to show something rather than for you to say, he's having a difficult life. We are storytellers. That's probably the biggest part of our job is to tell our clients stories. They can't do that well in the technical environment of a courtroom, but we can, and it takes some skill. It takes a lot of trial and error, and every case is a blank slate And how are you going to tell that story? I think show, don't tell is a really good principle to keep in mind as you work through the trial. Eric, you're right. They say a picture's worth a thousand words, but everybody needs to keep in mind, you need to have thought about before trial. I mean, figure out how you're going to put your damages on, what it's going to look like. The jury will have heard them already through the course of the case. It's just bringing them back to life and pointing out the highlights, certain significant parts of the damages. So we talked about physical injuries and let's talk now about emotional harms. I tell the jurors, I tell them in voir dire, I tell them in opening, I tell them again in close. I don't care if we've got an $8 million life care plan or a $10 million life care plan and somebody is paralyzed and the bed sores. I tell them now we're going to get to the most significant item of damage in this case. And that's the emotional harms, the emotional damages. These are the things that are going to be there. They can't be fixed. Every case, almost without exception, that I've had with a very serious or significant injury, permanent, significant, life-altering injury, when I talk to my clients and spend a lot of time with them, getting them ready, preparing to testify, preparing for trial, I go to their houses. I spend a day or two with them, seeing how they get out of bed in the morning, what the breakfast routine looks like. If you're not doing that, you're not doing everything you can to present these losses, present these damages of our client to a jury. And how in the world can we do that? You know, we'll never be able to walk in their shoes, but one way to really find out as much as you can is to go to their house and spend some time with them. And that's what I do. I, I do that in every case without exception. I will tell you, spending time with my clients and talking to them, and these are clients who have been burned have maybe lost a limb or they're paralyzed. And when you ask them, what's the worst part of this? It's not the physical injury. It's just not. It's the emotional aspect of those injuries. And I'll give you some examples. These are some things that I've heard over and over again. Somebody who's paralyzed and I'm asking them the hardest part of this, what is it? The answer, almost all the time, I hate being a burden to my family. I was a provider. I was the head of the family. I was helping support my family, putting food on the table. And now it's been flipped. You know, I'm a, I'm a burden to my family. I'm anxious about the future. I have a feeling of helplessness. Even doing little small things for others is a problem. How about privacy? My privacy is stolen. My dignity is gone. I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. One person, and it just came out. I mean, this is what he said. One of my clients, he said, you know, I'm, I'm trapped in a body that doesn't work. And I thought, wow, trapped in a body that doesn't work. You need to spend a good amount of time with your clients to listen, being a good listener so that you can help present their damages. i tell you, Eric, I had a case years ago, and again, it was an automotive product case. It was a rollover case. My client was paralyzed. And one of the things that he told me when I met with him, he said, it's that minute I wake up in the morning, the first time, and all of a sudden it dawns on me that I'm paralyzed. And I relive it all over again. And I just thought, wow. I mean, think of the days each morning Waking up and confronting that new every morning, it just, it blew me away. When you talk about what amount to ask for, 
it's going to depend on the case. It's going to depend on your client, but by all means, spend enough time with your client, get to know them. It'll make you a better lawyer and it'll certainly help you in presenting the case. You know, your client who woke up and relived it, that's bad, of course. But then the next day they do it again, and the next day they do it again. Many of the clients that you represent never are going to get better. I mean, try to think of something more important than who you are in the morning and as the day goes on. And if you're the person that used to be living a robust, interesting life where you would engage with other people, you were happy, you helped others, which is one of the best things you can do for yourself, helping others. In many of your cases, you have people that are unable to help themselves or help others. And those are both sources of joy in life. So I'm you, obviously, I'm not giving you any pushback at all on what you just said. You know, Eric, another thing too, a lot of times the person who's been injured isn't the best person to talk about the injuries. Everybody's had clients like this that very stoic and they kind of clam up and they're uncomfortable talking about it. And you, know, you can work with them and try to help them present this information as best as they can, but sometimes it just doesn't, they're not able to do it effectively. Okay. And I think what you need to do is you need to look to other loved ones or family members who are living there day in and day out. And a lot of times it's not the injured person. It's maybe the husband or the wife, the spouse, one of the children who are the best witness on damages. And you need to find that out. I had a case fireman who was, who was brain damaged. Nicest guy you ever want to meet, very upbeat. If you sat and talked to him and met with him, you wouldn't jump to the conclusion that he's got a significant brain injury, okay? You could carry on a conversation with him. And if you asked him how he was doing, it was always very positive and great. You know, I spent quite a bit of time with his wife of 30 years, you know, 25, 30 years. And it was one-on-one, -on -one, just her and me. And it was shocking. She was talking about how this has changed their relationship and being forgetful, leaving the stove on, leaving the door, you know, all of these different things that you don't think they're a big deal, but you know, they are. So that's another thing too. And again, we're talking not just how you present this in close, but how you get the evidence in and present the evidence at trial. And that's going to allow you to present it and argue it at close. I'll give you one more example. I handled a case where I was a defense attorney, but I really felt the pain on the other side where a man was quadriplegic and we took the deposition of the man and then he left the room. The plaintiff attorneys asked that he leave while we talked to the wife. And whereas he was somewhat upbeat and saying, you know, I'm getting along okay. And, you know, we get through the day and it was admirable. But when his wife came in, she talked about how it takes two hours to wake up. In other words, not just to become awake, but to get him dressed, to get him out of bed with his apparatus, to get him fed. It's a massive enterprise every day. It takes another hour and a half to, to get him back to bed at the end of the day. He can't lift up a glass of water. If he's thirsty, he has to ask her for everything. And so it might be that he you wonder whether he's in a defensive shell just for his own sanity. Because if he looked at it the way she looked at it, it may be hard to move on to the next day. I'm just trying to underscore your point that sometimes you need to reach out to beyond the plaintiff. You need to ask about the plaintiff's community, bring them in and ask, how's he doing? How's she doing? This is going to conclude our first session on presenting damages at trial, presenting them and arguing them. To summarize, there are two things 
that you need to do that will really help you in presenting and arguing damages in your case. And one is the jury's got to trust you. You need to be honest and you need to be yourself. And I think that'll go a long way toward being successful in arguing damages in your case. And secondly, just as important, give the jury some guidance, provide a legal and a rational basis for the amount of money that you're asking them to consider. You do that with the jury instructions and with what some of the other things that we talked about. In other words, look at your client's losses. These are some of the things that we value most in life. And it certainly doesn't hurt to compare them to the lesser important things and what values we place on them. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to talking to you at the next session. This is John Simon. I'm Eric Veith. See you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and tune into other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom and Results Don't Lie. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.